Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Your Friend on the Ground. So, fun story. Several months ago, I think it was in November of last year, actually, I got an email from a very good friend inviting me to her birthday party in Marrakesh. And it didn't take very long. I think it was probably less than two minutes before I replied and said, yes, I will be there. I'd been wanting to go to Marrakesh and Morocco in general for years, and it seemed like the type of place that would be really fun to experience with a group of friends and do a hike together, to run around the Medina together, to have lots of delicious meals. And at the top of my list, for reasons that I wanted to go, was the fact that someone else would be doing all of the planning. It was a guide that I had not heard of before. His name is Bilal El Hamoumi. And I, my friend has good taste. I was like, whatever she, whatever she figures out with him, I'm sure it's going to be great. So several months go by. We book our plane tickets. I went with Nikhil. We get the most beautiful itinerary I've ever seen. I mean, if PDFs could be framed, and I mean, obviously they can be framed. Uh, this one is definitely worthy of like printing out and laminating or putting in like a gold edged frame like the ones you see in museums. It was just a really beautifully, thoughtfully kind of annotated itinerary of all the things that we were going to do over the course of five days. And suffice it to say that I was jumping up and down excited at this point and thinking like, what caftans do I pack? Are these sneakers going to be good for this three hour hike we're doing? Or do I need to like get some real gear? Anyway, we get there and shortly after checking into our room at Dar Sabra, a, a beautiful compound that's on the outskirts of Marrakesh, I had the pleasure of meeting Bilal in real life He's really like the man to know in Morocco. He is so generous. He's always smiling. He's always ready with a quick comeback or a little dig that's going to make you love him even more. And he just knows all the things to do and the places to go, not just in Marrakesh, but in Morocco in general. He has a company called Inclusive Morocco. And if you are thinking about going to Morocco, you should definitely look up Inclusive Morocco and see if you can work with him to plan a agenda for your trip, because I can't recommend him highly enough. Bilal, thank you again for coming on the podcast. How is your day going? It's going very well, actually. It's a very lazy day in here. Um... Morocco's experience is a heat wave across the country now. So lots of people are just relaxed in like a typical Sunday in a sense, uh, lazier than usual. I'm curious, what is considered hot in Marrakesh? Because we're getting into it's the end of June, officially summer. Uh, what kind of temperatures are we looking at? Well, it is around uh, 41. The Celsius, which is around 105 uh, Fahrenheit. Oh my goodness. Okay. Desert, <laughs> yeah. desert times. Yeah. Yes. So today's a hundred and something actually in, in Marrakesh. So it's quite hot. 
Now, when it's that hot and you have to do a tour, say you're taking a group to the Atlas Mountains, which which you did with the friends that I went with, and it was so much fun. But I can't imagine doing that three hour hike in like a hundred something degree heat. Yes. So usually in uh, uh, like when the temperatures actually uh, rise like this, we would recommend people to go more and explore the coast of Morocco, which a lot of people don't know about. Because when you think about Morocco, lots of people automatically think of cities like Marrakech, Fez, and the desert. But there are, there are beautiful coasts across the Atlantic and in the Mediterranean, actually, that are quite spectacular. And usually during the summertime, a lot of people will, um, we would recommend a lot of people to go there, actually, and experience the culture from there. Because you can still find imperial cities, medinas, labyrinth-like Dukes and so on, but still like beautiful beaches that you can relax at and much better temperatures. And how far, how far is that from Marrakesh? Because Marrakesh is usually the, the starting point for most people, right? Like, okay, so walk me through. Yeah. If, if, if I'm coming to Marrakesh in say August and I've got, um, you know, a week to spend in Morocco, what would you suggest? Yeah. So normally if people come in during the summertime, they would st- we would recommend a bigger hotel or more resort-like hotel because you can enjoy the pool and so on. And a lot of people do actually, because during the summertime, you can get some really, really good deals in Morocco. Like for instance, the Royal Mansour is offering four nights for at the price of three nights now and so on. And this is an, an on-demand actually property. If you come in March or if you come in October, it's highly likely that you'll find it very, uh, uh, like fully booked and you won't get a room actually. And then uh, there are some coastal cities that are close to Marrakech. There is Asawira, which is uh, a small city in the west uh, of Marrakech on the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. It's known as the city of art and music. There is Walidia, which is known as the oyster city in uh, Morocco. It's about oyster two city. hours up. Yes, it's very, very, very well known for oysters. And when you go there, you take a boat ride and you learn about the oyster farms and so on. And then we can end it with a very nice picnic lunch across the beach in a private area where you have oysters and wine, actually, which is quite marvelous. I'm starting to drool now. You're making me hungry, Uh, Bilal. (laughs) Yes, I didn't expect actually to start this way. I'm making myself hungry as well. (laughs) We might need to get some white wine and oysters, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's Agadir, which is uh, known as uh, uh, like this little sister city to uh, Marrakesh in a sense, because you can still find the clubbing and so on. And that's where lots of young people would flock. Actually, right now, uh, just this weekend, the city of the Sawira that I talked about uh, hosted the Gnawa Festival which is a great festival that attracts a very international uh, audience uh, because of the spiritual kind of music that is actually hosted for a weekend each summer. And what is that kind of music called again? It's called Gnawa. It's a fusion between uh, sub-Saharan music and also Moroccan music in a sense. Um, It's uh, So because of that background, it's known as a more of a kind of music that connects you to the divine. So a lot of people, when they hear Gnawa, in a sense, they enter this uh, sense of uh, self-discovery uh, 
through the, the music and it's uh, kind of uh, elevates you in a sense from everything that is material. Um, and each year Morocco hosts this kind of a festival in the, the city of Astoria. Um, in the 80s, this festival was super, super popular with the hippies that actually a lot of them have uh, came uh, over and over again. And so today it's still like known as the hippies festival. Music that connects you to the divine. That sounds like yes. something I need in my life. True. Uh, but also like I'm not going to be <laughs> 100% on that side because there's a lot of hash consumption during that festival. <laughs> Wait, a lot of a lot of oh a lot of hash hash yes <laughs> sure yep. and it's it's like uh I, because in india they have hash too and i don't know that i've ever done it and i'm a li- I'm, I'm trying to is it like a cross between marijuana and opium it's a cross between tobacco and uh and actually and marijuana i see yeah. okay yeah and um yeah so it's like uh being on weed or something like that being on weed we know we know how to do yeah. that in california <laughs> i i don't really know yes. how to personally because it makes me paranoid <laughs> but um but okay so interesting so there's a lot of hash and you're you're being not materialistic except where the hash is coming from obviously you need that to connect to the divine and um this is the city that's really blue right Yes, so, so we were up we were really about six to seven years ago, and it was a small town, and then it became quite very popular. It's near Marrakesh. It's kind of hard to say that it's blue because a lot of cities actually in Morocco just blue, in a sense. So um, it's one of those. I see, like the blue facades that's common throughout Morocco. Yes, but the the actual blue pearl of Morocco is up north in close to Tangier, which is uh, quite far from Marrakesh. Um, and that's actually the blue city. It's uh, it's always had um, it's always had like that kind of color as uh, as its signature color in a sense since it was founded in the 15th century. Uh, because it was founded by the Jews and it was, the blue was more of a reminder on, um, in, in, uh, Andalusia or in, in, in the in Andalusian Arabs or the Iberian Peninsula, actually in Spain. Got it. Okay. Okay. Because I know that, uh, some friends, uh, from the trip, uh, that I was with you on in March went up there, uh, after. Uh, the time that we all spent together in in Marrakesh, and I saw some some of the pictures that they took and that you uh, have posted as well, and it looks it looks just stunning. What is the name of that city again? It's called Essaouira. Got it. Yes. It's also very popular for uh, surfing and kite surfing. Actually, it hosts uh, uh, like an international competition each year because it's quite windy, except during winter time. Um, but yeah, so a lot of people go there for water sports as well. How fun. Okay, so there are there are so many interesting places that you can go around the country, but I want to hone in a little on Marrakesh because it is it is the capital and the most populous city. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's not the capital. The capital of Morocco is Rabat, but in in a sense, Marrakesh now is the, the cultural capital of Morocco. 
Um, it's, it is the most popular city in Morocco. Lots of people, when they hear about Morocco, they automatically think of Marrakech. Uh, it's throughout like about 12 years now, it's always had the highest number of tourists, um, across the country. And to today is still like the, the number one destination in the country. And for, for someone coming to Marrakesh for the first time, how many days do you generally recommend? Normally, at least three days would be required. So, uh, so because Marrakesh, it, it does look smaller when you Google it or something like that. And you hear that it's only had like over a million population or something like that. But still, it is so culturally dense that you need actually time to, to absorb it really and to really get a sense of it. Because also, uh, it is a city that is very much multi-layered. So, just to get yourself into the zone in Marrakesh, would, would you need at least, at least one day, and then you can start to get into it actually from a historical point of view, or from a culinary perspective, or from the art and design uh, perspective. There's a lot actually that you can do in Marrakesh, and three days is the minimum you can stay here. Yeah, I, you know, well, well, you know what happened with us where we um, <laughs> were supposed to leave. And then there was that that time change situation that <laughs> that kind of not came out of nowhere. But um, the time the the government had decided to set back the clocks one hour, correct? Yes, indeed. Does that often yeah, happen so where they, <laughs> they like spring a time change on you? So Morocco is usually always on daylight saving time, or except on in Ramadan. So whenever Ramadan is close, and usually one week before Ramadan, they will turn back the clocks one hour. And then one week after Ramadan, they would go back to daylight saving time. That's quite, it's still confusing every year. So even the locals actually, so I can understand for someone like you staying here having to stay in one more night because of that. <laughs> we just simply had to. I mean, there's no yeah. way we could have made our flight. Sure. No, of course we could have made our flight. But uh, we had talked so much about the Royal Mansour and La Mamounia and the industrial district, uh, which which you were able to to kind of give us a, a crash course in. Um, for, for people who aren't familiar with it, how would you describe the industrial district of Marrakesh. Yeah. So the industrial district of Marrakesh was a place that was supposed to be uh, uh, like a neighborhood or a quarter where the local authorities wanted actually somewhere to encourage industry. But that didn't work out quite well for Marrakesh in the sense that a lot of the warehouses that were built there and so on were started to be overtaken around 2012 by a lot of artists and designers. So I would say that it's more of an early stage baby Soho, as I, I prefer to describe it. Um, it's a it place so that cute. actually, yeah, it is. <laughs> early stage baby, baby Soho. <laughs> baby Soho, <laughs> love that. Yeah, indeed. So um, a lot of artists and designers from Marrakesh have chosen to spread the industrial neighborhood as their own 
a base to uh, of creativity and to actually uh, connect in a different way with their own background and the culture. And later on, a lot of expats in America, she's known as a, a very big attraction to, to expats. So since the 80s with Yves Saint Laurent, and then later on with many other artists who came to Marrakesh, got inspiration from it. And to today, there's just still this fusion between what is Western and what is Moroccan and what we can uh, create actually by fusing the two cultures together and the two perspectives. So today there's a, a number of artists and designers who are actually working with that in mind. Yeah, there's um, the the shop that I went to, it's called Lawrence, right? It's one of those that doesn't have any vowels in the name, so you just kind of yes. have to fill them <laughs> in on your own. Uh, L-R-N-C-E? C-E. Yep. Okay, yeah, we got a vowel at the end, so we kind of have some guidance there, but such cool, <laughs> really cool prints. It's a Belgian designer, right, who's collaborating with local artists? Yes. So Lawrence is a Belgian designer married to a Moroccan guy here. Uh, she's moved to Marrakesh a few years ago and then started collaborating with Moroccan artisans in a sense. So you can see that when you go to her showroom, she has a very eclectic um, kind of showroom because she experiments a lot with different artisans from different backgrounds either like doing tiles or pottery or like fashion, weaving, um, and netherwork, shoes. So y- you've seen actually tableware, everything actually she, um, so she came up with a lot of modern designs in a sense. And, uh, and then she collaborated with artisans that have done those through the generations, actually learning from their parents and their parents learning from their grandparents. Um, and brought them in a new style or gave them a new life, actually, which I think is very important because a lot of the crafts in Morocco, um, in a sense, were on the extent, extent basis. So it does also give inspiration to locals, to, um, in a sense, so locals know how to reinvent themselves and they reinvent their own crafts as well. Yeah, I really, I really like the, I bought a tote bag from there and it's got, um, I, the, it reminds me of the artist, uh, Miro and his kind of, uh, the line drawings and the style, uh, of, of modern art that he does. But, um, it's a really interesting and, and singular aesthetic and, uh, there, what was the other shop that we went to right in front of the Medina that I think you said Vanessa Branson, uh, was, was the buyer or she like curates the goods there where I got that hat? Yeah. So Vanessa Branson, so Richard Branson's sister has a hotel in Marrakesh called El Fen, which translates into arts. So it's the Arabic word for arts, actually. And in, on the grand floor of Ansend, they have a nice boutique actually that belongs to the hotel, but you can also access it as a non-residence. And it's, it has also a very eclectic uh, showcase for a lot of designers actually in Morocco. Um, some of them are expats, some of them are locals. And it is one of the go-to destinations for anyone looking for cool and quirky stuff actually to shop while in Marrakesh. 
Yeah, they really, um, it, it felt like a really well edited, uh, selection of, of, of items that you might be able to find in the Medina in, you know, a, a, a different jumble of shops. But as, as you certainly know, and as I've experienced a couple times, the Medina is a whole, like, that's a whole, a very cool experience that everyone should do. But you got to be like ready for what you're going to dive into. Indeed, actually. Um, so the Medina is, especially the Medina of Marrakesh, is very, very, in a sense, it can be very, very overwhelming for, especially for first time visitors. Um, and that's why I would say that, um, shops like those will give you, in a sense, the ability to experience a lot of it, uh, while at the same time, um, be more of, uh, give you more of a direction, actually, because, um, especially on your own, you would find it very, very difficult to navigate, um, and, People will probably have the same stuff, but you wouldn't know which one has better quality and all of that. And so to ha- to find someone who can curate a space with a high quality product like Alfen, um, is great actually for, especially for first time visitors. For sure. Uh, that said, if, if, if they're going with you and you stop at Alfen first and then you go into the, Medina and you, um, you set us up with a guide, right? Who was taking us to some of the shops. I know that, um, we went to that one, not pharmacy, apothecary, Blotty. Uh, yes, for the herbologist. I didn't realize it was called an herbologist. Yes. That's where you find the cure for everything, right? That's where I got my, my herpes, uh, lip balm. Yeah. I use it daily. <laughs> Does it work? <laughs> <laughs> you are so savage, Bilal. This is this, it's why I love you. you, 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 you t- yeah, yeah. You don't let anyone get away. Um, but there's also you have a rug guy, right? Like if you're interested in going to to through the Medina of Marrakesh and and coming away with carpets and home furnishings, you've got a guy for that. Yeah. So normally uh, we would send our clients if I'm not with them with a personal shopper who knows all the best places and the behind scene places actually where to get stuff. Just because Marrakesh is now a very touristy place, so the quality of things would not be, uh, in a sense, uh, sustained or uh, at the same quality everywhere. So you need someone who is in the know about the, all the good places in the, within the city. And so um, that's why, for example, when you were here, I did set you up with uh, someone who really knows where to get the best bites or where to get the best ride, actually. And not only that, but also someone who we know that is actually trustworthy in terms of like the pricing and all of that, because you will hear a lot about people getting overpriced stuff here. And someone who will give you actually good guidelines or good tips actually on how to negotiate in Morocco and all of that. And these are things that people on their own will usually not know. And especially if you have not done an extensive research about the country, so you'll come here and you think that, for example, bargaining is not part of the culture or how to bargain, whether you should go halfway or you should go just a quarter or something like that. So these are the kind of things that actually a guide who is in a know or a personal shopper will help you with when he's with you. 
talk to me a little about bargaining because it is something that that you know some people are are it comes more naturally to some people than others but is there a rule of thumb for when you're in the Medina of Marrakesh like are there is there a certain way that you should open are there vendors who won't bargain with you at all and you shouldn't even bother how how does it work well, I think within the Medina, everything is up for a bargainer. So if uh, you are within the Medina, you should bargain. And it's, it is expected of everyone, even locals, actually. If you go and buy something there and I don't bargain, I would probably be ashamed to my family. Um, anyways. <laughs> and word will come back to them. Bilal didn't bargain. He's yeah. turning yeah, American. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So within the Medina, everything is actually negotiable. I think it is important for, and I, I, this is probably one of the mistakes that people make when they come here is that they think that they shouldn't bargain. I, I always tell uh, my guests actually that when you see something and you like it, don't go drooling over it in a sense and don't like show that you actually like it that much. Show some interest, but not too much, and then go halfway in bargaining. That's how we started, actually. Bilal, but it's so through. hard. It's it's. <laughs> I know. I mean, when when you <laughs> love something, I mean, I I know, I know because because Nikhil and I had some choice words to say to each other about this. But you know, yeah. you like fall in love with it, and when it's like, okay, this thing is either going to end up costing ten dollars US or or nine dollars what's what's it to me to just give them the price that they're asking for and walk away instead of haggling i know actually but sometimes you have to do what you get you have to do actually to get the best price in a sense um i think a lot of people what i tell people is that if you like something it's probably likely that you will not find it again so probably that's your best chance at getting it you will probably find something similar, but not the it that you like. Um, but it's, it, it is part of the experience in a sense. And why not give it a try? It's true. It's true. I mean, you know, the best is if you can have that degree of detachment and sort of know in your mind, like, look, I like this thing. I don't want to pay X for it. If they come down to Y, then, uh, then, then yes, I'll do it. But I'm not going to like... This thing isn't going to change my life. It's not like it's just a material piece of clothing or furniture or housewares, whatever it is. Um, yeah, I'm really bad at 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 having that degree of detachment, which is why I need to go to that festival that you were talking about earlier. But <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> I, perhaps it's something I can learn. Sure. Unless if, if it actually it's going to I am considered within my family as a, a not good at bargaining. So I am still learning myself, actually, when I give advice on it. <laughs> We're all learning. That's yeah. really cool. I want to back up and uh, ask you where where in Morocco were you born and how did you become a a travel a travel expert. I don't want you to call you a travel agent because I feel like you're so much more than that. Oh, thank you. Well, I was born up north in Morocco in a small town called Salkbir. That's where I, I actually, yes, yeah, so I was a small town guy. Uh, and uh, I spent 
the first 18 years of my life there until I got my high school degree and just like all small town guys, I just sprinted away from there as to work. So, and <laughs> then I the moved. Big city. Yes. Then I moved to a much bigger city on the coast, on the Mediterranean, and I studied there. I did my BA. Uh, I, I did a double degree in physics, and at the same time, I did English literature. Um, and, and so afterward, I enrolled, uh, I just got into the hospitality sector. So I was working for some big band hotels like the Sofitel and the Marion Tree. Um, I did my master's degree in Moroccan cultural studies. And afterward, I just decided to change actually my career from hospitality to the travel industry. And I started, uh, um, I became a travel agent. So for the past seven years, I've been planning trips actually across Morocco for people that I like, in a sense, and, um, and mainly people from the U.S. Um, and it's been a very, very, um, in a sense, rewarding experience because I have a great passion for the con- this country. Through my studies, I, I always want to delve more into our culture and discover more and so on. I also went on and did a PhD actually in performance studies, learning more about the oral tradition of Morocco and orality and how we express ourselves through storytelling and so on. Um, and so it's, it, it, it's been a very, very rewarding experience actually to share that culture and showcase the best of Morocco to travelers from all, all over the world. It's so, I, I, continue to be stunned that you have a degree in physics and (laughs) deal with idiots like me being like, Bilal, can I have some more water? I'm thirsty. I didn't bring enough. Well, I think, yeah, I think I'm still also surprised that I went on with it, although I knew that I will actually have something else that I will actually focus on, but it was very, very fun to do it. And I went on with it. And what a cool way to delve more into the culture of your your home country by by helping other people see what makes Morocco so unique. I uh, I so I know that you you plan uh, trips for for your friends and people who you like, uh, people who find your agency Inclusive Morocco through word of mouth, you also plan a lot of trips for uh, high net worth individuals. And uh, I assume that, you know, there's probably like a slice of the Venn diagram where you you like some of the HNWs, but, you know, there there may be some that you <laughs> are just clients. Too. True. So I don't get to choose my clients most of the time, as I told you, Sheila. So sometimes I get to work with Asians as the um, grand operator or as destination management company. Sure. Yeah, so some of them can be quite demanding in a sense. So um, true, I don't get to like all of them all the time. <laughs> I know. Well, that's why, you know, sometimes it's called work for a reason. True. <laughs> but I'm curious, <laughs> what makes a high net worth traveler different from your typical tourist in Morocco? Besides, you know, the the ability to spend more money perhaps but in in your experience how are the hnws different from the rest of us i think in a sense that the high net worth individuals are very much well traveled and so on Um, but at the same time there are people who are have very limited time so 
always have very high expectations and uh, quite unrealistic demands in terms of their travel. So they want to do everything but within a very limited time frame than everyone else, actually, because they want to go back and oversee their businesses and so on. Um, so uh, it, 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 the struggle there is just how to actually satisfy these people who have done some amazing over-the-top experiences all over the world and then they're coming to Morocco and how what we can offer them to actually create everlasting memories even for them because I know for like just lots of normal travelers will have are more easier to impress in a sense but for the high net worth individuals they they really have access to lots of amazing experiences that you have to think extra hard for them and make sure that everything is quite neat so that you can actually attain the level that they expect from your services what's the most uh outlandish demand that you've ever fielded from a high net worth traveler? Oh, that's difficult. <laughs> the outlandish. <laughs> I feel like I have to think about this. <laughs> well, I, there have been <laughs> there have been some in a sense, but you get, for example, I I recently got a request from a corporate group based in the UK who want to come to Marrakesh for two days and they want to do everything in a set. So um, it's 80 people and they want to, they land at 4 p.m. and they have one full day in Marrakesh, but they want to do about eight experiences. Um, and it is in a sense, I, it's not the kind of travel that is trending because a lot of people are having more of a slower kind of travel, but you have to accommodate nonetheless because of the time limit. But there are some, I think there are some more outlandish requests that we've got. I'll, I'm sure something will pop up and I will mention it later on. <laughs> yes. Uh, you had told me not long ago about a, um, a traveler who wanted to do a hot air balloon ride, but he was concerned about breakfast. Oh, yes. We did get a traveler, actually, who wanted to get breakfast early. And they they have a very strict diet schedule where breakfast is served at 6 a.m., actually. And then they have lunch at 11.30 and dinner at 5.30 or something like that. And it was quite interesting because they were, uh, they were scheduled for a sunrise hot air ballooning experience. And... Um, they said, oh, but how about breakfast? And we said that breakfast is usually served at like 9.30 to 10 a.m. And they were like, no, that's too late. So we had actually to get a butler and set up a whole breakfast um, in the balloon in the sky, actually. So someone served them freshly squeezed um, uh, orange juice. Uh, uh, they got them uh, uh, pancakes. They got them... Um, omelets and so on. It's, it's all served with cutlery in the middle of the sky while they're enjoying the sunrise over the high Atlas Mountains, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to accommodate. In, and it actually became a very cool and um, because that happened a few years ago. And then, and now it's, it became it's more of a trendsetter in a sense. So it's now became a norm. 
it's an experience. Was there a part yeah. of you that that wanted to be like, hey, listen, take a protein bar? Like, <laughs> don't worry about no. it. Like, I'll make you a shake and you can take it up there with you. Well, maybe in my inner, <laughs> maybe in your in head. My inner, yeah, in my inner below, I was like, oh, yes. But to be honest, these kind of challenges do actually help me be a better travel planner in a sense. And um, it's helped me actually more to uh, fine tune actually my experiences so that they can cater to this kind of, uh, and it's these kind of challenges when you overcome them and you feel that sense of pride actually that you were able to accommodate or or because people travel differently and we have to respect that. We do. I mean, we can make fun of them a little, but yes, yes. listen, if if someone has the means to uh, pay for a hot air balloon ride over the Atlas Mountains, which is I'm sure like the cherry on top of a very uh, opulent itinerary and they want an omelet up there who am i to say yeah, <laughs> you true. can't do that well yeah well a few years later salma hayek came to morocco and she did that exact same thing with her daughter so look what he got where he got us actually absolutely and you were absolutely. by that point i'm sure you had worked out the kinks and like you're you know <laughs> now it's like down to a science as it ought to be for salma um i want to talk about Two of the most spectacular hotels I've ever seen, the Royal Mansoor yeah. and La Mamunia, which I I had the distinct pleasure of spending one night the night uh, after I missed, quote unquote, missed my flight. Um, what is the difference between them? And do you think like who which property is for which traveler? So La Mamunia is a much more historic building. It's a palace that was owned by a member of the royal family it, it, that got to him as a gift from his father, who was the Sultan of Morocco at the time. And then uh, later on, it was uh, award- awarded to the state. It became gardens and then he built the palace. And in 2000, in 1923, it became a, a hotel. And it hosted some of the most iconic people who have ever visited Morocco from uh, like Paul McCartney or uh, let's say Church, Winston Churchill uh, to the Kardashians today. <laughs> so um, it, it is, it's always been the go-to hotel for lots of celebrities who want a place with the, the actually where they, everyone can show up instead. And uh, so it is a hotel that has a lot of vibrancy, a lot, a lot of personality, and so on. The Royal Mansour was opened in 2015, and it's a, a hotel that is owned by the King of Morocco. It took about five years to build it, and so they got artisans from all over the country to actually showcase the best of current craft in Morocco. It was designed as a little sneak peek into the life of a royalty within Morocco. And so it's um, architected as a small Medina within a Medina. Mm. Um, and it is the perfect retreat for lots of people who want a lot of uh, a relaxing time in a very serene and tranquil uh, atmosphere because 
as you've seen, there are no rooms at uh, the Royal Mail store. Each one gets their own private Riyadh, which is uh, like a Moroccan house. Each Riyadh is a three-floor building where you get like a guest room, a dining room, and, and so on at the ground floor. A bedroom with uh, an on-speed bathroom in the middle floor. And then there's a, a terrace with a plunge pool and a sun lounges and so on. So it is um, the perfect retreat. It's more of a sanctuary, actually, the Royal Mansour is. And that's where the difference lies, because La Memunia is opulent and really out there in terms of the energy and vibrancy it actually spreads, while the Royal Mansour is very private and very serene in, its, uh, in the terms of the atmosphere it's, it's, it shows. I think, yeah, that that definitely, from what I've seen, my my brief visits to to both places, that sums it up. Like La Mamunia is a place where you would pop champagne by the pool. The Royal yep. Mansour, you could certainly do that, but I feel like you're, I don't know, maybe you're detoxing there, or you're like, yeah, that spa alone, just just looking at it, made me feel calm. Yes, exactly. I had a guest who actually described the Royal Mansour as a mausoleum. People, oh, people a ma- oh, a mausoleum. Like a, yes, like exactly. a, I see. Yes. I, for some reason, I always associated mausoleums with like, um, funerals or like a yes, funeral home. It's true. <laughs> well, I think, yes, it's, it, it's, the meaning is more like that, but she meant it in a sense of the, how spiritual she felt like walking through the gardens and everything is so serene and so quiet. I get it. It really is. Yeah, it, it it's interesting because I think the day that we were there, I believe that they were at full capacity. But yes, even as you like, we saw a couple of people as we were eating lunch. But as you were walking and you kind of gave us a, a quick tour um, through the spa, which I, I realized that like calm is not actually how I felt. I think I was just like stunned beyond belief. And like, Obviously, I had my phone in front of my face and was, you know, trying to record a video to capture it. But you really can't like it's just this yeah. intricate these these the the way that the um what kind of wood is it made out of or is it marble? So there's cedar wood and, mar- and marble, yes, and Carrara marble. That's what it is. It's the way that it's yeah. like interlacing and the designs. It's just like, I, I don't know, it's like spectacular beyond words. But um, we didn't see like a single soul as we were walking around. True. Yes. Uh, yeah. Even in terms of service, you'll find the Royal Mansour very private and um, so on. So there is like an underground system where all the, the staff actually can uh, access all the riads from underground and then do the secret kind of behind the scenes service so that they would not disrupt the calmness of the atmosphere. And now those two hotels are, of course, not the only hotels uh, where you can stay in Marrakesh. And they're not, and hotels are not the only lodging option. There's also, you can you overtake a um, a compound like the one where uh, the, the friends who organized our trip uh, you, that you helped them find. And then there's also the option of staying in a Riyadh, correct? Yes, indeed. So there's the option to find, to like have a private villa where you can just stay in the outskirts of the city, like you guys did, or 
you can stay in a Riyadh within the Medina. And a Riyadh is a traditional palace that have a garden on a, on a courtyard, yeah, a residential house, but it was turned into guest houses and hotels. And there are some very nice Riyadhs within the Medina that, as options where you can stay, actually. Interesting. So what if you had to pick, what would you say is your favorite option for staying in Marrakesh? Like, would you would you pick one of these beautiful luxury hotels? Would you do a place like Dar Sabra, the place uh, where where I stayed? Uh, or would you do a Riyadh? I think a Riyadh would give you much more of an authentic experience. So I would uh, normally yeah. like spending the most is not really the the points of it. So you can go and of course experience La Mamunia or Royal Mansour and they are at the top of the list within Marrakech. Um Riyadh that I would still recommend. There's uh, like a small hotel called La Sultana, which is a combination of five uh, Riyadhs. That is uh, one of my personal favorite in the city. Uh, there is a Riyadh by Jasper Conran in uh, Marrakech. Uh, it's called L'Hotel Marrakech, and it's just five suites, but each one of them is very, very meticulously um, actually designed and so on. And it's one of my favorite places to stay in the city. Very cool. I need to, I bet, yeah, you, you were telling me about La Sultana. I definitely want to check that out, um, yeah. as well as that Riyadh. Next time I come back, I, uh, I, I want to make sure we touch on something that, uh, was one of the most surprising parts of, uh, in a wonderful way of, uh, the trip, the nightlife, like that club. I, yes. I didn't think that Marrakesh would be this, like, thriving, have this thriving club scene, but, um, I, I'm absolutely forgetting the name of the place that we went to. It, it was so much fun. Yeah, Teatro. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Two nights in a row. Oh, well, yes. I miss our McDonald's stops. Yeah. <laughs> that was the best McDonald's I think I've ever been to. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, so lots of people don't expect actually Morocco, and especially Marrakesh, to have any kind of like nightlife because you hear about it as a dominantly um, Muslim country and uh, it's much more conservative and so on. But Morocco, in fact, is quite much more liberal. Marrakesh is the most liberal city within the country. So, and it has a very vibrant nightlife, actually, where, and that's why it's became also a destination for local tourism. So a lot of people who are into clubbing and so on would come here uh, during weekends and so on, and they would go and have a nightlife, actually, within the city before going back to their uh, works during the week. Um, and there are lots of options actually for clubs to go out and have a nice time actually, um, within the city. Yeah. It, it Teatro reminded me of, uh, a, a smaller version of a place called Excess in Las Vegas. Have you, have you ever been to Vegas? Uh, no, I have not yet. Yet is the key word there because when, yes. when you do come, <laughs> when you do come out, make your West Coast trip, LA, Vegas, wherever else you would like to go, we'll 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 have to have a night at uh Excess or um Hakkasan or I I haven't been to Vegas in a minute, so I'm not up on all of the clubs <laughs> there, but uh yes. And then you'll be able to compare and contrast. Oh perfect. Yeah, I am definitely gonna gonna uh touch 
uh, get in touch with you actually when I plan my West Coast trip to the US. Absolutely. I can't <laughs> wait for it. And speaking yeah. of planning trips, uh, I wanted to ask you something that I ask every guest at uh, your friend on the ground. Uh, what are the five things that you never travel without? If you're going on a trip, whether by car, by plane, whatever it is, what are the five things that you're always bringing with you? Well, I've normally always traveled by sunglasses, although they are usually the, always there. I, I like to take a, a bag of uh, roasted almonds. Usually I get them from the high Atlas Ooh. mountains. Yes. And I roast them myself. So I, I, yeah, I take some of them actually with me when traveling because I, a lot of time I find myself just exploring and forgetting to eat. So it's always good to have snacks. <laughs> You um, hand roast. I actually, I don't even. <laughs> for some reason, yes. I decided to throw hand roast like you're sticking your hand in like an <laughs> open flame. Um, what what it makes these almonds so special, and like, how do you do you season them? Do you put like salt or any spices? No, no. Actually, I I do. Uh, you can add a bit of salt, but usually you can just uh, uh, roast them with a bit of like olive oil, just uh, uh, vegetable oil, and then. You put them for a few minutes in the oven or on a pan, actually, and roast them yourself. They're very, very nice almonds that you get in Imli at the base of Mount Tupkal in the High Atlas Mountains. And usually I would go there and buy them fresh and just roast them. And so that way I can have them in snacks when I travel. Um, That's so smart and resourceful of you. (laughs) I, I think that I'm like smart by bringing packaged snacks that I get from Erwan. You're like actually getting almonds from, are they grown in the Atlas Mountains? Yes. So normally the Valley of Imlin is very known for its almonds and apples. Oh, yeah. How cool. All right. So you got your sunglasses, (laughs) you've got your almonds. What else? I also travel with uh, my Kindle because I don't usually read hardcovers. So I usually uh, just uh, read with the uh, my Kindle, Me and too. I also t- yeah, and I also take my tennis shoes. Uh, have this uh, white the blue stripe Adidas shoes that I take everywhere. I don't know. People have been telling me to buy new shoes forever, and and I just love them. So I've I've had them for years now. And uh, I think the last thing would be a power bank because I use my phone for photography, for work, and for everything, and. As someone who has to handle trips across the country and sometimes simultaneously, you have to be uh, on call like most of the time. So I have to have a power bank actually so that I can keep my phone charged and so on. Of course, because you're also contending with different time zones. And, you yes. know, when when it's like 2 a.m. in Morocco, someone in Los Angeles could be calling you and asking for updates and you know kind yes. of kind of yeah just just blowing up your phone do you find that um are are there are there travelers from one one country that are more high strung than all the rest well the the french have a reputation in morocco in a sense uh, i think that most travelers that have well dev's world well they will require lots of information but uh there's some understanding. People are actually much more aware of like the time differences now. And so there's a bit of understanding. 
But the French have a reputation of being more, a little bit more obnoxious. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that tracks. That, that makes sense. Um, one other thing that I probably should have brought up earlier, uh, because I know that it was a, a question among the friends that I was traveling with, uh, uh, the, the question of modest, um, like, it, that's generally recommended in, in Marrakesh, correct? Like, to, to, one should dress modestly. But in practice, like, what does that mean? What does it mean for men? What does it mean for women? Yeah, so it depends actually on the time. So um, dressing modestly will be different from one region in Morocco to another. So for example, if you go to fast, I would say that women should be more um, uh, like conscious about how she dresses because fast is a little bit more conservative city. So usually a dress uh, like below the knees and covering the shoulders would be sufficient. For Marrakesh, as we said, it's much more liberal city, so there's a little bit more of um, freedom regarding dressing and so on. So it will depend on the regions. I, I would say the the bigger the city, the more liberal and open-minded it is, so you can be more free to dress as you like. If you go to rural Morocco and smaller towns, it's it would be good for um, like a woman to dress, to cover the, the shoulders, dress below the knee and and avoid, for example, uh, short shorts and so on. Um, for men, uh, it's also probably the same, like uh, wearing uh, shorts that are too short uh, mm -hmm. can be a little bit inappropriate. Um, but that's it. Otherwise, you'll find that the Moroccan... Uh, people are quite aware of the cultural differences or most of them would be accepting of uh, the dress code. It's just from uh, respecting the culture point of view. Maybe we leave our hot pants at home. Yes. We, we, can, we can wear those in Vegas. That's, they're, they're, yeah. There are better places for hot pants. <laughs> um, well, Bilal, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. Uh, it's such a pleasure to, to talk to you. And, uh, and truly, you, you really you made our trip beyond memorable. I don't know how we would have navigated Marrakesh without you. And I can't wait to come back to Morocco and explore more with you. Oh, thank you so much, Sheila. It's great to be with you. And uh, thank you for inviting me, actually. And uh, I'm so excited to have you back whenever you're free, actually. Just ring me. I 100% will. I'll try not to do it at like 3 o'clock in the morning your time, <laughs> but, you know, no promises. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll, book us, I'll book us a knife at Theatro. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my producer, Evan Lindsay, for doing all the very important stuff that I do not know how to do. Subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and if you're on Instagram as much as I am, which is a lot, follow me at SheilaYM and at your friend on the ground. Till next time! <laughs> <laughs>